0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribbon, and today my guest is Ian Clary. Ian is Assistant Professor of Historical Theology at Colorado Christian University, and today we're talking to Ian about his new book, Reformed Evangelicalism and the Search for a Usable Past, the Historiography of Arnold Dalimore, Pastor-Historian just published by Vandenhoek and Ruprecht. Ian, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me and thanks for the congratulations. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's a great book. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it now. Uh, before we talk about the book, though, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Were you always in Colorado?
0: <laughs> no. Um, in fact, I'm just um, we're just finishing up... Um, I guess, the first semester of my fourth year here. And so we, my family and I, we moved uh, in the summer of 2017 from Toronto and Canada. And uh, there I had been teaching uh, part-time at Redeemer University College. I was doing some history courses for them. And I was also pastoring part-time in a Baptist church. And so uh got the call here uh, to come and, and teach historical theology. But Um, As is often the case with smaller liberal arts universities, uh, professors end up having to teach a whole range of subjects. So I am doing historical theology, but I'm also doing New Testament and philosophy and world religions and all the rest. So it's been been an interesting experience, to say the least.
1: That's great. Good. And the project we're talking about today, Reformed Evangelicalism and the Search for a Usable Past, has has got a long
0: trajectory, doesn't it, in in your academic uh,
1: background? Yeah,
0: I mean... The, the book itself deals with a guy who actually was a graduate from my, my seminary. So, um, I went to Toronto Baptist Seminary, uh, for my master of divinity and my master of theology. I studied with a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Michael Hagen. And, uh, and so in, in many respects, yeah, it was his interests, in these sorts of things that, uh, that my own and, uh, and, and one of the big, uh, pushes behind my desire to, to study this, you know, this, this church historian from Canada. Uh, was because of Dr. Hagen. And so, um, yeah, I just, it, it, it's, it's an interesting book in one sense. You know, if I can speak my own book this way, uh, in that it, it really kind of deals with a whole range of different subjects, uh, that all kind of have like a, a kind of personal connection to me in one, one sense. But, uh, yeah, definitely.
1: Good. So could you tell us a little bit about who Arnold Dalimore was then and why he matters?
0: Yeah, so Arnold Dalamore, um, for, for for people that are into church history, especially um, 18th century uh, or history of revival and those kinds of things, you're probably familiar with his name. Um, he was the uh, biographer of George Whitfield. Um, so the Truth Trust in the UK had published, um, you know, over the course of about 30 years 2 volume work on Whitfield written by Dalamore. And uh, and so when you kind of deal with any sort of Whitfield studies today or the studies of the history of revival, um, you're going to see Dalimore listed in a bibliography and, and most likely engaged with this level um, within the work. And so um, that, that's what I found remarkable about him was that he was um, a man who was not trained properly speaking as a historian and uh, nevertheless wrote this, you know, fairly substantial um, and important study on, on Whitfield. and and. Part of the reason for me doing this book was just a, a curiosity to think to see like how, how did he actually do this and did he actually do a good job and uh and i note in the end of the book um aspects of his importance and one of the things that i had noted as well was um we've had this so you know resurgence of so-called new calvinism uh particularly in north america but also in the uk um and you know, it's it, this, this movement, the so-called Young, Restless and Reform kind of have its antecedents in people like a Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, or like a Dalimore. Um, And many would say um, to this day that, um, you know, his two-volume biography of Whitfield um, had a huge impact um, on the church, on individual Christians, people that are leaders today. I, I cite something like a D.A. A a. Carson, who's a Protestant scholar in Chicago, um, who noted just, you know, the the impact that it had on him as a younger man when he read it. And, uh, and so, so though Dalamore pastored in a, in a small little hamlet just outside of my hometown of Windsor, Ontario, um, it had a, a, a very significant impact, um, which I found fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's
1: a really remarkable story that your book tells because, as you say, it, it is the story of uh, almost a hobby historian, an untrained historian, but, but someone who takes history very seriously, obviously, um, but, but who was always working part-time, until eventually he gave himself to full-time writing and, and, and was never commercially successful. And yet and, and yet produced this book that now everyone who works on 18th century evangelical history has to cite, and all of that without any formal academic training. So it's a remarkable story, Ian. But as we begin to think about Dalamore, could you tell us something about his early life? What brought him into the Baptist ministry and, and what, what drove him eventually to think about history as a, as a vocation.
0: Yeah, so Dalamore, he was born to British parents who'd emigrated to, to Canada in the 20th century. And uh, both, both his mother, Mabel, who had a really important um, you know impact on her young son and uh, his growing up, as well as his dad, who he wasn't as close with, both of them had, in one way or another, sat under the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. And, uh, and so they were very committed Baptists, trained him up as a, as a Baptist growing up in, in London, Ontario, Canada. And that, that's sort of, um, the shadow of Spurgeon, I think, was always looming in the home. And I think that had always given him a, a kind of interest in, in, in the, the Christian past. Uh, and, um, he, he was growing up in, the, the time of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. It was, um, especially, um, you know, the, the wars of that were raging in North America and, uh, and, and especially in the Toronto area of Canada. There was a very important pastor, um, who was, who was originally from England, who had <clears throat> taken up uh, a pulp, uh, an important pulpit in, in Toronto at Jarvis Street Baptist Church. She was likened as the sort of, uh, surge of Canada. And, uh, and Shields had a very direct influence on, on, uh, Dalamore's family and on Dalamore himself. In fact, Dalamore would go to Toronto Baptist Seminary in the 1930s and actually study under Shields. And, uh, and it was under that kind of like, you know, Shields is a very committed reformed or Calvinistic preacher. And that shaped Dalamore's thinking. Um, although he doesn't come to Calvinism himself until a little later. Um, but that, that whole kind of like ethos of the, the fundamentals of the faith, we need to have these fights. Uh, in order to preserve orthodoxy, all of that shapes Dalimore. And, uh, and the first, although it's funny, the first actual, um, uh, piece of history writing that he did was, it was his, uh, bachelor of, I think it was, he did a bachelor of theology and he had to write a thesis and he wrote it on St. Francis of Assisi, of all people. Um, for somebody who's in a fundamentalist, very anti-Catholic mindset, uh, he saw, he, he saw Francis as sort of like a, more of a friend to Protestants than Catholics, um, which is kind of interesting. And uh, he had first read of Whitfield while he was in Bible college or seminary there at Toronto Baptist Seminary. And it wasn't until a little later that, uh, having read a biography um, of of Whitfield that he felt was subpar, he thought maybe he could do something like this as a means of making money on the side. And that was that was sort of how his interests manuscript. Of, uh, of, of, a, of a Whitfield biography that he just didn't like and he ended up throwing it out which was you know you know how it is as a historian to to know of a source that no longer exists um you know it's very uh very disappointing to find out that i would never get a, get my hands on that and uh and so he, he then went from 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 that to, to throwing it out to starting again from scratch and then with the help of a number of figures with the banner truth trust including Lloyd Jones. Um, he then dove uh, headlong into the, these two volumes. The first volume took him twenty years to write, um, so he spent a lot of time, um, and a lot of energy working on it. So,
1: and while while he was working that first volume, Ian, he he was he he was doing several things, wasn't he? He was obviously he was a Baptist pastor. He took some time out of his of his ministerial career um, for health reasons, for reasons of mental health, I suppose. Um, can you tell us a little bit of his personal circumstances um his marriage um how that might have shaped him, and also the pressures that that brought financial pressures that that brought that drove him to begin this really extraordinary twenty year project of writing a single volume history or the first volume I should say of his history of Whitfield
0: yeah you you uh you I don't know that you've necessarily well, you probably experienced this to some degree as a historian yourself, though you write on people more from the seventeenth century. Um, but you know how history is dangerous uh because people can get very um, you know, uh, tied in personally to interpretations of the past. And it gets more dangerous um, when you have to write on people whose families are still living. And um so, you know, some of the things that I say in the book, uh even in regards to the mental health stuff, you know, is is uh th- those are hard things to write about, knowing that you know his. Who I'm, who I'm actually friends with, I'm friends with a number of people in his family. that were very helpful for the for me writing this book. Um, but you know, for the for the sake of just you know being forthright, I, I think he was somebody that struggled with depression his whole life. Um, you can see this uh, early on in some of the poetry that he would write. I think he had a very difficult relationship with his dad that affected his sort of, um, his own headspace, as it were. And that carries with him all throughout both his pastoral ministry as well as his, 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 writing. And, uh, you see it too in certain points. He writes a biography of, of Charles Spurgeon and Spurgeon suffered with depression and you get a sense in those, those sections that there's a, uh, feels affinity. And, uh, and so, um, his ministerial experience in Canada was by and large quite difficult. I think he really only had one, maybe two, he would describe as just very positive church experiences. He pastored a church in Orangeville, Ontario, that was really good. That was where he met his wife, actually, May uh, Dalamore. and uh, and then he had some difficult ones. The worst was one back at his his hometown of London, uh, at what was uh, called Briscoe Street Baptist Church, uh, known as the Pastor Killing Church. Uh, most most pastors who went there didn't last a year. He lasted just over that. Um, but it sent him into a tailspin. I think it, any of the, the the melancholy or the struggles that he had with depression, I think, were just exacerbated um, with this church that really really did a number on him. The church actually doesn't exist anymore, and um, and so he ended up having to leave ministry for a time. Um, he was he was very handy. Uh, he was good at building um, houses and those sorts of things. And so that that uh, the, the hiatus he took from pastoral ministry, he turned and. And put it to uh, to physical use by um, you know flipping houses as we call it,
1: mm.
0: and um, and yeah there was there was a time then right around that where he disappeared and um, his wife she only knew he was doing something kind of medically oriented, uh, but she really didn't have any idea where he went um, for that period of time, and I didn't either. Um, it wasn't actually until after I finished my dissertation I discovered actually what had happened to him. So I, I had the privilege of of getting to interview um, Mrs. Dalimore, so I never met Arnold. Um, he had died um, before I, I had any interest this way. Um, but I, I was given the opportunity to meet with his widow, um, and um, she, she, when we, we we spent a good hour, hour and a half, two hours together. And when I asked her about this, um, she even to that day, and I think until her dying day, never knew where where her husband went for a number of months. Um, just that it was vaguely in upstate New York somewhere. And then it turns out that um, actually Dr. Hagen, who I mentioned earlier, um, was doing a small biography on on one of Dalamore's friends, uh, a man named Hal McBain, who was a really important Canadian Baptist in the 20th century. And um, and as Dr. Hagen was researching McBain, he discovered a, a box uh, called Dally's Dillies. And, uh, and it was, it was, uh, sealed. So we got permission to open it for the McBain family. And in there was all this correspondence between Dalimore and Hal McBain. And a lot of it was actually from Dalimore's time while he was actually in a, you know, I don't know if we would call it a mental, mental health institute, um, but he was basically having to deal with his mental health problems. And, um, and so the only person who really knew where he was was his best friend, Hal McBain, even his own wife didn't know. And um, I think that I think that that's a that's probably a product of, of, you know, the 20th century um, masculinity kind of, you know, views of masculinity, where you kind of don't want to admit that you have any of those kinds of problems, especially as a pastor, which felt was a very lonely occupation. Um, It was just not something that you talked about. And so, um, you know, our day, thankfully, is very different. People that have mental health struggles should be able to talk about those things openly. Um, And so I I feel sort of bad for him that he got, you know, couldn't even talk to his wife. Uh, But all, all, all that shapes, all that shapes, I think, both his ministry and his, his writing, because I don't, you know, I think if he hadn't had those struggles, I think if he hadn't had difficult churches, he wasn't really, he wasn't really making much money. He would never have written, you know, this, this massive, you know, massively important two volume work on Whitfield, which is really interesting when you think of, you know, um, bringing good
1: out of out of a bad situation I think he did that in spades yeah it's a fascinating story and, and the way you tell it, it just un- it un- unpacks itself so beautifully but I suppose one of the questions that haunted me as I, as I thought about this was was the question of whether writing was good for him if mm. if, if being in his own was possibly a difficulty if he found being a minister a lonely kind of career. Was it good yeah. was it good for him to shut himself in a study for 20 years away that's from away from people to, to write this important book
0: yeah that's a really good question um you know as I as I think about how he would describe his writing experience he was definitely lonely um, there's a Canadian singer named uh, music group called city and color and he has a song called the lonely life of a writer and uh, I think he did experience that. But I think he would have, anyways. I think that was just his personality. Again, this is a product of the 20th century, where the pastor is put up on a pedestal and really seems kind of unknowable or untouchable. And I think, um, you know, because he was in ministry, he would have felt that loneliness anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, also through his through his um, real deep engagement with Whitfield, he he came to embrace much of Whitfield's theology, especially his Calvinism. And he felt that that also made him bit of a pariah within his own denomination and uh, so that added to the feeling of loneliness but it also gave him a new community of people to, to engage with so he he became very close with a lot of the, the, the uh, British evangelicals surrounding you know the banner of truth so he was very he good friends with Errol Hulse um, who just passed away a number of years ago uh, he was good friends with Martin Lloyd-Jones with Ian Murray um, with uh, Jeffrey Williams and so even though to certain, in, in a certain sense, he was lonely. In another sense, he actually he gained a whole different group of friends that he, that he felt really understood him. Um, so I, I think the book, I think the book probably, the, the writing probably gave him something that he wouldn't have other, otherwise had. Hmm.
1: Interesting. So his first big project then was the first volume of the Whitfield biography. How long did yeah. you see it took him to write? About twenty years. About twenty years for a single book. Quite quite <laughs> yeah. incredible. And I think you tell us it's sold somewhere just above 30,000 copies. Um, so yeah, it's, it's good sales, but it's not massive sales, is it? No.
0: <laughs> now, I mean, it's, what, what, it's not a heartening for me with my uh, thinking of the sales of this book for myself. So. Yeah, exactly. It's sales I
1: would dream of, but that's not the point. Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of book was this? He, he wasn't a trained historian, but he was a passionate and committed historian. And he, he was both learning from Whitfield's ministry, as you show, embracing ultimately some parts of Whitfield's theology. Um, but he was also shaping a picture of Whitfield that he could give to the world. What 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 was this biography like as a piece of history?
0: Yeah, that's the big question that I'm 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 addressing in in the book itself. Um, you know, to kind of step back and look at the the bigger debates that go on over historiography, especially evangelical or Christian or historiography. Um, you know, I'm trying to to think through his, his placement within some of the debates over you know, what we would call more academic or objective historiography versus the more kind of providentialist or hagiographical history history writing and um, you know if you read any any kind of reference uh, to Dalimore on Whitfield in academic studies um, so say if you if you turn to Harry Stout you who know, teaches at Yale. If you look at his study of Whitfield, he would, he would refer to Dalimore's work. He would, he would think it was important and, uh, and made some good contributions, but overall he would describe it as something that was, you know, hagiographical or sometimes kind of called And, um, and so as I was, as I was getting into this question and, and wanting to situate Dalamore in, in these debates, um, I started, I actually initially took it for granted that he was writing hagiography. And then, as I kind of got into it a little bit more and started to see that, you no, know, he's actually willing to critique Whitfield at a number of key points. Um, he's definitely an admirer uh, of his subject. He identifies with Whitfield in many respects. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, he's 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 willing to willing to to say things um, that he you know that would he would have would have seen would have been hard for him, I think. As an admirer, um, but was nevertheless, he had to be, he knew he had to be critical. And so I'm trying to exonerate him a little bit from the pure hagiography. Um, he's definitely an admirer. Um, but I don't think that he runs some of the, the risks of, you know, what we, you know, the historical fallacies that come with something like hagiography, like not willing to see his subject's faults, um, you know, whitewashing history, kind of putting him up on a pedestal as a, as an untouchable hero and those kinds of things. So I was, I was glad to see that. That that there was uh, a degree of criticism where I think criticism needed to be made, although there are other places where he could have been more critical too.
1: Um, So give give us an example of that, Ian. You talk about the issue of slavery in the book, for example, and Whitfield's role in introducing slavery to the state of Georgia.
0: Yeah, that was that's the biggest area of criticism um, that that Dalimore will level against against Whitfield. Uh, He does he doesn't go far enough, and and I. Partly, I think that the critique of Whitfield on slavery for Dalmore, um, I think he's he's a little bit muted, maybe might be the way to put it, in that, uh, of course, he loves Whitfield, and he's trying to see him in the best possible light. Um, but it, he also suffers from just not having, you know, known, ha- having manuscripts available to him or some of the available to him to know how far Whitfield actually pushed things when it came to slavery. There's actually Tony Kidd in his uh, his biography with Yale um, that 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 unearthed some very disturbing things about Whitfield's slavery. Um, the main one being that he actually illegally introduced slavery into the into the into Georgia. Um, Georgia at that time uh, didn't have uh legal slavery largely to do with um, fears of slave uprisings in in the Caribbean coming in through Georgia. And so they thought, well let's, you know, let's let's keep slavery out of here to kind of protect the rest of the colonies. And Whitfield um ironically um, wanted to build a slave orphanage in Georgia and um was not he felt like he was being hindered um in doing that by not being able to use slaves to actually build and then work on this plantation. And uh and so he he just went ahead against Governor Oglethorpe and brought and brought slavery in and uh and then and we can, in many respects credit slavery in Georgia to, to what Whitfield did here. And, um, and so, uh, Dallimore doesn't know all that. It's, it's, it's Tommy Kidd that kind of brings that to light, um, for his own book. And, um, so I'm not going to fault Dalimore for not knowing, um, the full extent of things. And, uh, and even though he is admiring Whitfield, uh and even trying to put him in a better light with this issue, he's still really quite you can tell just reading the pages of the book that he's he's disappointed that Whitfield would have anything to do with slavery. Um so Whitfield had written a, a tract critiquing slave owners. Um and in that he you know he basically said, Listen, you treat your dogs better than you do your slaves. Um you know these are human beings that Whitfield, you know, in his own in his own ministry would preach to slaves and treated them as humans. But he nevertheless Doesn't come out and critique the institution as something inherently evil, and uh, and so Dalimore definitely you know realizes that um, that's a failing on Whitfield's part, and uh, and and he you know he'll say I had to say this like I I don't want to but I have to because Whitfield was just flatly wrong on this issue, and so again so I think that that kind of keeps him out of being accused you know from the accusation of of being a hagiographer. Um, and so, though he wouldn't put the critique in, the, in exactly the way I would want him to, um, I'm, I'm glad that he made the critique, nevertheless.
1: Yeah. So, th- 30,000 plus sales, uh, the book is widely loved within a certain constituency. What is it that makes it so good?
0: You know, because um, I, I come out of that constituency, that's, that's my own sort of theological heritage, is that sort of... You know, the banner of truth, love for the Puritans, Lloyd Jones, uh, revival, Calvinism, all that kind of thing. And, uh, and so I, I remember just my own experiences with, 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 uh, Alamores Whitfield, the first time, just being blown away thinking, wow, this could happen. You know, God could, God could pour out his Holy Spirit in revival like this. And, uh, and then just really desperately wanting it. And, uh, and, and my own, my own peer group of other pastors and, Um, seminarians all kind of reading this and just and having that same desire put in their hearts to just want to see revival come and um i love i love what you know i mentioned d.a carson earlier this new testament scholar um he he was doing a conference with um with don piper's ministry and uh and the pastor's scholar the scholar's pastor which got put into a book with Crossway publishers and um, and so you can read it as well as watch it online and, and Carson and, and if you know anything about Don Carson, he's not a guy that cries easily. <laughs> uh, he's a very um, you know very strong personality. And when he when you watch him um, talk about an example of the pastor's scholar, he uses Dalimore and when you when you watch him he's very he's very emotional in talking about the impact that that the the two volumes had on him. And, uh, and Carson's description of it was after he read it he said lord do this again and uh and i think that's where it comes from i think people really have this this, this you know this this special this this particular kind of constituency has a real desire for her to seek revival and uh and this book this two volume book um really Stokes that i think that desire in people's hearts and it, it did for me and uh, and i know it just I, it just seems to be that for everybody who reads it
1: it's it's a lovely anecdote, Ian. The anecdote you just shared because it reminds me of one of the other things that you explained in the book, which is that D. A. Carson's father and mm-hmm. Arnold Dalimore were friends, weren't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Don Carson wrote a book called "Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor," um, a, a very short but really powerful book about his dad, Tom Carson. Um, yes, who was who was a contemporary of Arnold Dalimore's. They went to seminary together. Um, they- they actually, uh, Tom Carson spent the vast majority of his pastoral ministry in, in Quebec, which was a very, very difficult uh, place to be an evangelical in the 20th century. And uh, and so Dalmor had actually gone and spent time with him. Dalmor became fluent in French. He actually communicated well in French. And uh, and so yeah, they had been good friends. I think that also is behind some of the emotion for Carson as uh, as he's thinking about Dalmore, is thinking about his own dad too. Um, and they. A, the, uh, the denomination that both uh, Tom Carson and Arnold Dalimore were in, which is actually the one I'm an ordained minister in or as well as the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, um, it went, it, the, it was birthed out of a really difficult split, um, where a number of, of these evangelicals that, uh, kind of had, who had a past in fundamentalism had split from this guy TT Shields. And, uh, and so both Tom Carson and Dalimore Sided against Shields in the split, and then were some of the key founders of this denomination, and uh, and so some of that gets written about in, in Carson's book about his dad. Um, Dalamore appears in there, and um, and so yeah, there's it's an in, in interesting parallel in, the, in terms of both those men's lives. Mm. Well,
1: Ian, you've written this really wonderful book on Dalamore's significance, uh, principally as an historian, but uh, as a as a rounded um, Christian figure as a rounded minister as well, Reformed Evangelicalism and the Search for a Usable Past, the Historiography of Arnold Dalamore, Pastor Historian. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time today and we really appreciate it, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment?
0: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working on a number of things. In fact, just, just this past summer I contributed a chapter uh, to a book on, on Canadian Baptist Fundamentalism, um, that'll hopefully come out um, ne- early next year. So I did a chapter on on the fellowship uh, that uh, that I just mentioned that uh, Dalamore was one of the founders of. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one coming out. Um, I'm also involved with, with again with Michael Haken on this. Um, he has a thing called the Andrew Fuller Works Project, and so um, this coming summer I'll be working um, with with uh, Stephen Holmes, who's from, um, who teaches at St Andrews, and we're doing uh, the sermons of of, of Andrew Fuller, who was an 18th century adapted um, so that'll be the next big project that, that's coming um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting those out because that's, that's that's been on the horizon for a while So That's
1: great, well those sound like great projects and maybe we'll be able to hope that you can come back and talk about them
0: sometime Yeah, that'd be, I'd love that, thank you
1: That would be great. Ian, thanks for writing this book, Reformed Evangelicalism The Search for a Usable Past and thanks for coming on to the show tonight to talk about it Thanks for your time and take care
0: I appreciate it, thank you
1: And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.